0: It is a pleasure to be continuing this journey that we find ourselves on called Before Calvary in which we are looking back. We are looking back 2,000 years before Jesus ever arrived on the scene. We're looking all the way back into the Old Testament to see how the stories that we find there actually reflect back the face of Christ. That's one of the things that we believe as Christians, that all of Scripture speaks about him. And so as we are approaching Holy Week, as we are approaching uh, Easter, we want to take some time to look back because it's in looking back that we gain deeper insight into those final days and hours of Jesus' life and ultimately see what it is he came to give us. That when we talk about salvation, we see what that really means. And so I think it's only right that before we look at yet one more Old Testament story, that we allow God to prepare our hearts and our minds for the message that He has for us this morning. So would you please bow your heads and pray with me? Lord Jesus, we give you thanks that on every page of Scripture we find your name, that in every story we encounter your character, your purpose, your presence. And so, Lord, as we once more come before your word, we pray that you would give us eyes to see you, ears to hear you, open minds to understand you, and open hearts to receive you. And, Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would indeed be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So the story that we're going to look at uh, for this morning is actually one of the more familiar Old Testament stories. It's really the Exodus story. It's that story of the Ten Commandments that's been uh, enshrined in films. Uh, Back to Cecil B. DeMille's great uh, film, Ten Commandments, with Charlton Heston. Uh, For my kids, it's The Prince of Egypt, the animated version by DreamWorks. More recently, it was a poorly done action film by Ridley Scott called Exodus, Gods and Kings. And what I find so fascinating is that this is a story that just seems to captivate people. It's, it's a story that seems to draw us in because it's a story that's about a, a tyrants and slaves. It's about, it's about a genocide and, and freedom. It's about justice and rescue. It's this incredible story, this incredible narrative that regardless of whether or not you are a person of faith, you can't help but be pulled into the tale. But this morning, I want us to look at it with a slightly different set of eyes, to not just look at it as a, as a great story about something that happened long ago, but to see it as a story that actually points us forward, points us forward to something greater, a far greater exodus, a far greater rescue. But first, I want to make sure that we understand the context a little bit, that, that we revisit what, this, what had happened in our story up to this point You see, what we read when you go to Exodus chapter 1 is you find that the people of Israel, God's chosen people, those descendants of Abraham, Abraham who we met last week in in our first message in the series, that they've now grown in number. That they're no longer just a small tribe with 12 sons. They're actually a, a nation of people. And they had been living in Egypt. They were actually uh, brought to Egypt by one of Jacob's sons, Joseph. Joseph, who had risen to great power in Egypt, who actually ended up not only rescuing Egypt, but rescuing all the nations around Egypt uh, when a severe famine struck the land. It was Joseph, guided by God, who stored up food for the people. And so it was that Joseph brought those descendants of Abraham, his, his brothers and their families to Egypt where they dwelt in safety for many, many, many years. But at the beginning of Exodus, we see that all that has changed. For it says in Exodus chapter 1 verse 8, Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. And afraid of the people and afraid of the, the, how numerous they had become, he actually ended up enslaving the descendants of Abraham. Enslaving the 12 tribes of Israel, forcing them to build his temples and palaces and storehouses. And it was under this back-breaking labor that they languished. But then we also read in Exodus chapter 1 that a deliverer shows up. That one Hebrew woman, rather than throwing her son into the Nile the way that Pharaoh had commanded, actually ended up saving him. That he eventually is adopted by Pharaoh's own daughter. That he's raised within the halls of power to become a prince of Egypt. And his name was Moses. But Moses, in a rash act, thinking that that salvation was going to come by his hand and his hand alone, ended up murdering an Egyptian, ended up uh, uh, finding himself pursued by the law, ran away to Midian where he hid for many years as a shepherd. But God was not through with either Moses or his people because we read in Exodus chapter 3 and 4 that God calls to Moses. He says, I'm sending you back to Egypt. I'm sending you back to Pharaoh because I have heard the cries of my people. And I will lead them out. And so to Pharaoh, I'm sending you. And when Moses is frightened by this and says, well, well, how, how can I possibly stand before Pharaoh? How is this freedom going to come about for your people? God says these words. He says, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. And so I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. And it's during this kind of climactic moment as God is striking Egypt with wonders and plagues that we come to our text for this morning. Uh, A story that begins in Exodus chapter 12. And so if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to open up to Exodus chapter 12 with me. You can also grab the pew Bible uh, that's in the back of the pew in front of you. And again, I say this uh, pretty much every weekend that I'm preaching. If you don't have your own Bible, take that pew Bible. That is our gift to you as a congregation because we want you looking at God's word for yourself. Because Exodus chapter 12 kind of comes at a climactic moment. God has been striking Egypt with various plagues. Plagues that on the one hand are an assault against the, the gods of Egypt in many ways. See, the Egyptians were 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 polytheistic and pantheistic. They believed that every part of nature was really a god. And what you see in all these plagues is that each one kind of takes on the Egyptian pantheon in an incredible way. And and we don't really have time to get into it this morning, but we've been preaching through Exodus during our midweek services, and so you can actually go back and listen to the message as we look at each of these plagues in turn. But one of the things that's interesting to note for our purposes for this morning is that during the plagues, as God is striking Egypt with these terrible calamities, we find something very, very interesting. It's something that God says in Exodus chapter 8. He says, on that day, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen where my people live. For no swarms of flies will be there so that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. See, what God says is although he's going to strike Egypt with these plagues, he's going to make a distinction. He's going to make a distinction between the Egyptians and the people of Israel. He's going to make a distinction between the oppressors and the oppressed. He's going to make a distinction between the taskmasters and the slaves. He says, I am going to strike the Egyptians, I'm going to strike the slave masters with my wonders, but my people will be protected from each and every one of these plagues. And in fact, you see it kind of repeated and hinted at with many of the other plagues. So that when uh, the plague of the livestock happens and and the, the flocks of Egypt are dying, it says that all the livestock of the Egyptians perished, but not one animal belonging to the Israelites died. Similarly, later on, it says that uh, when the, the Egypt is struck with this horrible hailstorm that destroys not only crops but people, it says the only place it did not hail was in the land of Goshen where the Israelites were. And likewise, it says that when the plague of darkness, the ninth plague comes, the plague right before our passage for this morning comes, it says, total darkness covered all of Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or move about for three days, yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. You see, over and over again, as these plagues strike Egypt, God seems to make a distinction between his people and the people of Egypt. The people of Israel are protected from the plagues. But then we come to our passage for this morning, where Exodus 12 reads this, beginning in verse 2. It says, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be a year old, must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the fourteenth day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight." And then they are to put some of the blood, uh, take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. He says, eat in haste. This is the Lord's Passover, for on the same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. See, what's striking about this final plague is that here now, God doesn't make a distinction. Before, he said the plagues are going to fall on Egypt, but my people will be protected. But here now at the Passover, God says, you need something to, to protect you. You need something to shelter you. Furthermore, what's fascinating about this is later on he says anyone who does this will be protected from the destroyer. The implication being that even if an Egyptian, hearing these words, had slaughtered a lamb and painted its blood over their doorposts, they would be passed by. You see, this is the first plague where there's no distinction is made. Where suddenly God's own people are in danger. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is why? Why are the people now suddenly in danger of what's about to take place? Well, the answer comes in a very, very small detail that we find in Exodus 12, verse 12. Listen very carefully to what he says. He says, On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are and when I see the blood I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. See the important detail that we have to pay attention to in Exodus 12:12 12, 12 is that here now for the first time God is saying I'm not just striking Egypt with a plague, I myself am passing through the land. He says, when I pass through Egypt, every single person, every human being and firstborn of every animal is in danger. And the reason why is because when the almighty God of the universe, who is perfect in his holiness and righteousness, takes a walk, no one can stand before him. This is something we often wrestle with, I think, as modern people. This idea that God could judge. And we ask ourselves the question, why does God judge so harshly? I mean, why doesn't he just let good people, you know, stand in his presence? Why doesn't he just let good people go to heaven? And the answer is quite simply because the good that we often think is good enough doesn't compare to the perfection that God demands. You see, God made us in his image. That's one of the things that we learn at the very, very beginning of scripture in Genesis chapter 1. And likewise, God tells his people later on in this very same book, the book of Exodus, he says, you want to know what it takes to stand in my presence? Be holy as I am holy. See, part of our problem with talking about goodness is that often we make the bar too low. We often compare ourselves uh, to people who are worse than us, who don't do as well as we do, and we somehow think that makes us safe, that gives us some sort of comfort. But what we see here is that Yahweh, the one who reveals himself as I am who I am, that what he asks of us is absolute perfection. And when he walks through the land of Egypt, anyone who falls short will fall before him. Not just those who are part of Israel, not just those who are part of Egypt, anyone. For every person of every single nation will be judged before the throne of God. And this is why God says, you need something to protect you. And what I love about this passage is that God tells them exactly what they need. He says, if you desire to be protected from the judgment that is coming, you need something to stand in your place. Again, this should sound familiar to us, especially if you were here last week. We talked about the power of a substitute, right? That every single one of us is answerable to God, but what God does is he provides a substitute. Something to take the punishment on its shoulders, and God tells them, I want you to take a lamb, to sacrifice a lamb. And he says, and when the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he'll see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe, will pass over that doorway. He will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and to strike you down. God says, yes, when I go for a walk, everyone is in danger, which is why I provide you with protection. I provide you with something that will stand between you and me, a substitute whose blood on your doors will cry out on your behalf, and I will pass by, and I will allow no destroyer to enter your homes. Man, I have to wonder what it would have been like to be in Egypt on that night. Have you ever stopped and thought about that for a second? I find it... I find it... (laughs) strangely odd and humorous that we, like, tell this story to our kids? That this story is in, like, children's Bibles? Because, I mean, think about how absolutely terrifying it is. Basically, God says, I want you to go in your homes and don't come out till morning. And actually, later on in the passage, it says that there was wailing throughout the land of Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not someone who had died. Don't go outside. These people trapped in their small slaves' huts with the doors shut, blood dripping from the doorposts as they hear screaming. Screaming in the dark. And yet, that next morning, when the sun rises, they walk out their doors, free people. They step into the sunlight for the first time in their lives as liberated men and women. God doesn't save them out of this judgment. He saves them through this judgment. He carries them through this dark night into the light of their own freedom and salvation. The judgment does come, but God saves them through that judgment by providing them with protection, with a substitute who will take their place. And when the sun rises again and the horrors of the night fade away, they step into freedom. They walk out of Egypt, slaves no more, people of God. It's an incredible story. You can see why it makes for the best films and the best dramas. But there's one other thing that I think is really worth noting in this story. It's something that, that God tells Moses and that Moses then passes on to the people. This is what God says. He says, This is a day that you are to commemorate for, the generations to com- for generations to come. You should celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. Now, one of the things that I just love about studying biblical languages is uh, although we have great English translations, there are certain words that you just can't quite capture like all the richness of the word. And this final word in that verse, that word ordinance, is one of those unique words because it can be translated a remembrance, something that you look back toward, but it can also be translated as sign, something that points you forward. This word ordinance can be remembrance, something you look backward, but also sign, something that points you forward. And what I think is so amazing about this word being used here is God is saying, yes, it's something you will look back to in order to see what I have done for you, but it's also something that points you forward to something even greater that I still have yet to do. And it's actually something that we only get hinted at until Jesus ultimately shows up. You see, if you go to the Gospel of Luke for a moment and you look at the Transfiguration account... This moment in Jesus' ministry when he takes three of his disciples up onto the mountaintop and and he's finally revealed in all of his glory. One of the things it says in Luke's gospel is that two men appeared with him, Moses and Elijah. But here's the really fascinating thing that it says. And they spoke to him about his departure that he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. But the amazing thing about that Greek word departure is it's actually the Greek word exodus. It says that Moses shows up on the mountain of transfiguration with Jesus and talks about the exodus that he's about to accomplish in Jerusalem. And this sign, this ordinance, we suddenly understand what it's pointing toward. Because as Jesus enters into Jerusalem on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples ask him, where do you want us to go to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? The the exodus Jesus is about to perform actually takes place during this festival. But what happens next is truly astounding that when they sit down at the table, at that moment when they would have looked at the table and seen the sacrificed lamb that they were about to eat, that moment when they would have raised a cup of blessing, talking about the liberation that God brought to them in Egypt, Jesus does something truly surprising. Instead of taking the lamb, he takes bread. And he blesses it and he breaks it. And he says, this is my body, which is given for you. And likewise, as they are about to raise that cup, in remembrance of what God did in Egypt, Jesus takes the cup and says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. You see, at this Passover meal, Jesus is saying, it's no longer the lamb whose body is given for you. It's no longer the lamb whose blood is shed for you. It's my body. It's my blood. Shed to set you free, not just from slavery in Egypt, but to set you free from slavery to sin and death itself. So that when the Lord comes again in glory and walks through the earth, you can stand in his presence as free and liberated people. That's the greater Exodus. Jesus is the greater Passover lamb. He is the one who lays down his life to protect us, who sheds his blood to cover us so that no destroyer may enter in. This is incredible comfort for us as people of faith because the reality is is that there are many moments in our life when we encounter things that would destroy us, things which would threaten to overwhelm us. And yet in those dark nights of the soul that assault us, whether they be illness or loss or even the fear of death itself, Jesus says, you can be at peace for you have been covered by the blood of the lamb, my blood, which takes away your sin. See, the reality of Christian life is not that it's always going to be uncomfortable. Like the Israelites, we are going to encounter terrifying moments, screaming in the night, dark periods and chapters in life. And yet what Jesus says is he says, but in those seasons, in those moments, the destroyer will not enter in. He will not have the final word. Because even should death overtake us, we will rise to new life and walk into the light of his salvation. Free people, liberated people, people who know indeed the love that God has for us in Christ Jesus when we realize that we've been protected by the blood of the Lamb, we can actually say with the Apostle Paul, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus our Lord. Why? Because he poured out his life that we might live. Because he is our perfect Passover lamb. I don't know what season of life you are going through. I don't know what dark nights of the soul plague you. But the comfort of this text is know that you have been washed and covered by the blood of the lamb. That because of what Christ has done for you, you are protected. You are passed over and you have been ushered in to new life through the one who loves you. Through Christ our Lord. It's something that actually we remember every single time we gather around this table. Every time we take communion. What do we say? Do this in remembrance of me. Why? Why? because it points us back to what Christ has done, but it's also a sign that points us forward to what he will ultimately do. It's a foretaste of the feasts to come. When God comes again in his glory and we all sit down at the wedding feast of the Lamb and he wipes away every tear from our eyes and there is no more crying or mourning or pain or death for the old order of things has passed away and behold, the new has come. It's something that we're told happened before Calvary. Something we're told was completed at Calvary. Something that we are promised will come in all of its fullness on the day when the Lord returns in glory. And so it is that we say, thanks be to God. We pray. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks that in our dark nights of the soul we can know that no destroyer will enter in for we have been passed over because you laid down your life for us. And so Lord, help us not to fear. Help us to rest in the knowledge that we are protected and held within your hands. And that in whatever dark night we may face, we can know that the sunlight of freedom is coming for you have passed us over. You have claimed us as your own. You, the Lamb of God, has laid down your life so that we too might be called Lambs of God. It's in your name, Jesus, that we say, Amen.